but one God forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, chapter 16, looking at verses 35 through 40, the title of today's sermon is The Ruler Over the Kings of the Earth. I'll read from verse 16 of chapter 16 through to verse 4 of chapter 17. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ 
had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. So you'll see there the map, as usual, to help keep the geographical setting in mind. They're there on the western shore of Macedonia at this point in time, having started all the way over there uh, in the eastern portion of Turkey, beginning in Antioch and walking across uh, all of what is today Turkey, coming there to the western shore at Troas and then taking a, a boat across there to Macedonia after their miraculous Macedonian call. And Luke joined them at Troas and, of course, Timothy joined them there at Lystra and Derby, and so now his team is be re, being, has been reconstituted. He had lost, uh, he had lost earlier uh, the uh, special fellowship that he'd had, but it was replaced when he got Luke, when he got Timothy. So we've looked at running the straight course when they uh, received the call. We looked at the great wrath of the serpent of old uh, when they were uh, beaten and mistreated, and then last week uh, we saw how the kingdom which cannot be shaken when God released them from the prison. Today we're going to look at how the Lord is the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. And I hope that you will have this scripture in your mind and heart as we go through this and that this uh, truth will impact your view of today's world. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Brothers and sisters, the events of this life are not controlled by men, not even by the rushing tumults of evil leaders but instead, they're controlled by God. So we'll look at the magistrates, uh, how they change course in verse 35 and 36. We'll see how Paul stands for justice when he could have just left. We'll see the fear and the pleading of the magistrates, especially noteworthy given how they behaved the day before. Paul and his team encourage the brethren and depart. They don't immediately depart. They go and focus on God's church and encourage the believers. And then we'll see some questions to know and to love and to obey God more fully. So the magistrates changed course, verse 35 and 36. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore, depart and go in peace. So the the scripture tells us that when it was day, this happened. So it's the first thing. So it appears as though they had changed their mind overnight. What had occurred? Did they feel the earthquake? Probably. Did they perhaps hear about the miracle? Maybe. Did God convict them of their sin against Paul and Silas? Perhaps. Did someone wonder aloud if Paul and or Silas were Romans? That's probably the most likely explanation, is they realized that they had made a big mistake, according to Roman law. Commentary says the magistrates that had so basely abused them the day before gave the orders, and their doing it so early as soon as it was day intimates that either they were sensible the terrific earthquake they felt at midnight was in tended to bleed the cause of their prisoners, or their consciences had smitten them for what they had done and made them very uneasy. While the persecuted were singing in the stocks, the persecutors were full of tossings to and fro upon their beds through anguish of mind, complaining more of the lashes of their consciences than the prisoners did of the lashes on their backs, and more in haste to give them a discharge than they were to petition for one. Can't help but wonder if Paul and Silas not only prayed for the jailer, But perhaps they even 
prayed for the officers and prayed for the magistrates and prayed for the wealthy syndicate that had come against them. What about this word, the officers? It literally means the rod bearers. It's one who carries the rod, a public official who bore the staff and other insignia of office before a magistrate. So this was a position, and they carried the rod about with them as a sign of the authority and the potential consequences of standing against the magistrates. I hope we'll all remember that Jesus is our Heavenly Father's rod bearer who rules the earth via His Almighty Word and His people. Greatest jeopardy is upon those who oppose Him, and Paul knew this. He knew the true rod bearer. Psalm 2 says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. They had beaten Paul, but he knew that there was one who held a bigger stick. Psalm 110 verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. There is a rod with which Jesus rules the earth. Revelation 2 And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. When Christians take up the position of civil magistrate with the law of God guiding them, ruling according to righteousness, they are taking up this very rod of iron with which Jesus Christ will, does, and shall rule his earth. Revelation 12.5 says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Revelation 19.5, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. We are the body of Christ in this earth, and he shares his righteous rod of rule with us as we obey him and do his will as Christian civil magistrates. So what is the message? Uh, The message is let those men go. It's delivered to the jailer by those who are carrying the rods coming from the magistrate. Let those men go. You know, worldly sorrow wants to minimize, wants to cover up, wants to dismiss, wants to come in and act all nice and try to redirect things. So the the magistrates don't come in person and they offer no apology and they just want the men to go away. They want this situation to be finished, covered up and taken away. They have concluded that their magistrate power should not be put to use any further against against Paul and Silas. Commentary says it is probable that the magistrates had some intimation that they were Romans and were made sensible that their fury had carried them further than the law would bear them out and that this was the reason why they gave orders for their discharge. So, in the Roman world at that time, the Romans would put the rod to use in enforcement of Roman law. And it was consistently applied enough to where these magistrates in this town were concerned with what may happen to them if Roman rule heard how they had behaved. Again, I want us to note the Lord holds the hearts and decisions of political rulers in His almighty hand. And He turns them in His direction no matter the prior flow of their thinking and desires. No matter how tumultuous, no matter how rough that river is, no matter how fast it was flowing, He can redirect it in a moment. 
The order was, let those men go. It is probable that they designed further mischief to them earlier, but God turned their hearts, and as He had made their wrath hitherto to praise Him, so the remainder thereof He did restrain. And Psalm 76.10 talks about how the wrath of men brings praise unto God. Of course, the greatest example is the way that Jesus was crucified. So the jailer brings the message and delivers the good news to Paul. And he sees only the good news because he's, it seems, he's yet to be discipled into the endless sovereignty and power of God. He's not thinking about bigger picture stuff, about the church, about how this will impact the church in, in Philippi. He's just glad that this man who's helped him find Christ is going to go free. He's focused on Paul and his well-being. The jailer felt the earthquake in the jail and in his own soul, but he was yet aware of Christ's constant reign. He was not aware that Christ is the rod bearer. He was not aware that Christ's reign extended even into the hearts of those who had not openly bowed down to his majesty. He was not aware of this. The jailer does not expect any chance of magistrate humbling, thinking this is the best that they could expect. This is instructive for us. We should consider these things as we pray and as we engage with leaders today. So the jailer's advice is to to depart and go in peace. This is a great deal. Take it while you can. He has no sense of seeking an apology from the magistrates because he still sees them with earthly eyes, not with faith. Why risk it? This is a good deal. Take what you've got and get out of here. He's probably very happy for Paul and Silas that they can escape any further pain and suffering. That's good. He's not thinking first, though, about what is best for the body of Christ in Philippi. But Paul probably is, and this is a major lesson for us. Always, the question must be, what's best for the body? What's best for the body of Christ? Not what's best for me, not what's best for my family. What's best for the body of Christ? Not that he was desirous to part with them as his guests, the jailer, but as his prisoners. They shall still be welcome to his house, but he is glad they are at liberty from his stocks. God could, by his grace, as easily have converted the magistrates as the jailer and have brought them to faith and baptism. And so Paul is certainly aware of this. He's seen his own conversion. He was a rod bearer for the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was the worst of the worst rod bearer, and God converted him in a miraculous way. He has full confidence in God's power to convert, in God's power to change hearts that are not converted. So what does he do? He stands for justice. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. So Paul has a different perspective. And he goes through and he lists their train of abuses. They had beaten us. Their unnumbered blows over their entire body. They had open wounds that the jailer had had to tend and clean and wash for them. And a part of it, surely he wants these magistrates to see the bruises and the blows on his body and on Silas's body so they can see what they did with their own eyes. They can see him wince when he moves during conversation with them. This was done openly. And recall, they were stripped before the multitudes. This was a public 
humiliating assault. And Paul by no means was going to accept some private, secret, dismissive way of dealing with it. They were uncondemned. They had not been granted the privileges of Roman citizens to due process of law. It was unlawful and it was a big deal to beat Roman citizens without due process. The, the threat of Roman reprisals was very real if Roman citizens were mistreated. So I want us to note here the potential effectiveness of political power to curb the abuse of power. Good laws applied by good men can restrain evil leaders, even those who are not saved. We can only assume those Romans over these magistrates were at least occasionally lawful and just enough to maintain the fear of the rod bearers in their minds. And sadly, this is the only tool that restrains those who are outside of Christ. Roman historians give instances, we are told by the commentary, of cities, entire cities that had their charters taken from them for indignities done to Roman citizens. So Philippi was facing, the whole city was potentially facing very significant consequences for what these magistrates had done. They were backpedaling. They were on their heels. They had gotten carried away by the wealthy syndicate and the multitudes and the masses and probably the demonic stirrings that were going on during that episode. And by the time the deception cleared and the the reality of the situation dawned on them and they maybe heard about them being a Roman citizen, they were like, oh, wow, we are in trouble. Commentary says they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison against all law and justice. That's another, that was another one of the wrongs. They cast them into prison, also without due process. And now do they thrust us out privately and think to make us amends with this for the injury done us? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out and own that they have done us wrong. Now, this does bring forth an interesting question. I don't know for sure the answer, but it's worth considering. Why didn't Paul bring up his citizenship at the time they were brought before the magistrates initially? We see him later mention his citizenship in another situation. But in this situation, he didn't. I wonder, was he submitting himself to the path of Christ for the sake of the gospel? Did he possibly calculate that this act would augment the glory of Christ in that town while diminishing the influence of these bad magistrates and these evil merchants, this wealthy syndicate? Perhaps Paul was that wise and that full of understanding during that time frame. Who knows? Paul is not going to let them sweep it under the rug. He is not going to allow that to happen. He's thinking about the church. So Paul's faith in Christ as the ultimate rod bearer moves him to use the power of his Roman citizenship to humble the magistrates and to assist the newborn Philippian church against further mistreatment and slander. Commentary says he insists upon it that they should make them an acknowledgement of their error and give them a public discharge to make it the more honorable as they had done them a public disgrace, which made that the more disgraceful. Let them come themselves and fetch us out and give a testimony to our innocency, and that we have done nothing worthy of stripes or of bonds. 
It was not a point of honor that Paul stood thus stiffly upon, but a point of justice, and not to himself so much as to his cause. Let them come and stop the clamors of the people by confessing that we are not the troublers of the city. He wanted all of that fixed and cleared up before he left so that the church could be on a far more solid footing for future evangelistic efforts after he left. And he was willing to potentially rile them up and go through another episode of their madness. This is instructive for us. So he tells them, basically, humble humble yourselves and make this right. Right? Now, he he could have done more. He could have gotten on a boat and gone back to uh, Rome. He could have used his connections with Rome to do that. He just says, please humble humble yourselves and make this right. So he, he says, you need to come yourselves and you need to get us out yourselves. So he's not allowing for any more messengers, no more hiding, no more minimizing. It's time to face the facts and deal with this like adults. So he's the one issuing the commands now. They're the ones taking commands, if you will, instructions from Paul. So brothers and sisters, I hope you will see this just in a day's time. These maddened magistrates, when God moves, he can bring the tyrants into the light, exposing their evil deeds and leaving them shaken and in jeopardy of justice if there are just laws and just men willing to apply them. This should really encourage us and help us see a path forward in today's world as well. So what do they do? We see the fear and the pleading of the magistrates. Again, could there be a greater contrast between how they were just the day before towards Paul and how they are now? And the officers told these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Their rod bearers weren't such a comfort to them anymore. They, were, they had a bigger fear in their mind. So let's look at the fear of these magistrates. This is the fear of man. This is the fear of Roman law. This is the fear of coming under the punishment of Roman law. So these who had been angry and wrathful toward Paul and Silas are now afraid of them, not because of Christ, but because of Roman law that God had sovereignly placed over them. And it could be very serious the sanctions that they could face. You know, we have laws in America, uh, federal and at state level, uh, and these laws can carry some very serious sanctions for things such as criminal enterprise and fraudulent business dealings and corruption as a civil magistrate. These laws carry serious sanctions. They're present in our land today by God's sovereign plan. I want us to note that Christians surely may hold tyrants accountable to the law. But look, the focus is for the church. It's for the church. This is always a risk because tyrants are usually unscrupulous. We know the tools they use. Paul did not shrink from the risk because he was thinking for the church and not for himself. Reminds me of Pastor John MacArthur out in California a great hero of the coronavirus episode. Commentary says, the magistrates feared when they heard it, lest some of Paul's friends should inform the government of what they had done. 
and they should fare the worse for it. The proceedings of persecutors have often been illegal, even by the law of nations, and often inhuman against the law of nature, but always sinful and against God's law. <clears throat> it's important to note that Paul and Silas, they made no threats towards the leaders. They did not breathe out any threats, or did they try to stir up any uh, violence or rioting towards the leaders? They simply informed them of the law and pointed them to the potential consequences of this behavior. So these magistrates are afraid, not because Paul has threatened them, not because he's tried to stir up the town like they were accused. They're afraid because they've broken the law. And Paul's going to, you know, he points that out. They could be held accountable for that. So they're afraid, and their their response is to plead. And they come in person, and they do their own pleading in person. Now, this word plead means to beg, to entreat, to beseech, to strive, to to appease by entreaty. And it's the same word for comfort, encouragement, the paraclete idea of coming alongside So they're like, oh, hey, Paul and Silas, you know, we're kind of all in this together. And, you know, we were doing the best we could. And we just heard from these merchants. And now we understand. And we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. So, wow, let's just uh, shake hands and, you know, we can fix this. You go your way and it'll all be fine. They came and besought them not to take advantage of the law against them, but to overlook the illegality of what they had done and say no more of it. So the magistrates themselves were the ones that brought them out of the jail. This is daytime. The magistrates themselves asked Paul and his team to depart. They didn't demand it. They didn't require it of them. And I want us again to note the power of God to humble haughty magistrates who have done wrong. Now this should greatly encourage us, even if it was only out of fear of justice. That's been placed there by God in His kindness to His people to restrain evildoers. He that affronts a Roman, a gentleman, a nobleman, though ignorantly and through mistake, thinks himself concerned to cry, Pacavi, I have done wrong, and make his submission. But he that persecutes a Christian because he belongs to Christ stands to it and thinks he may do it securely, though God hath said, He that toucheth them toucheth the apple of my eye. And Christ has warned us of the danger of offending his little ones. So little do these magistrates know that this law that brings fear into their souls and keeps them from going further is protecting them from further touching the apple of his eye. Husbands, consider how you would respond if you saw your bride being treated the way these magistrates treated Paul and Silas. Think of the restraint of God as the apple of his eye is treated this way. So the entire city saw the magistrates come and speak softly and humbly to Paul and Silas. They would have seen this, how they were talking, how they were pleading, that they came in person, they took them out of the prison themselves, and they had a conversation with them, all, all chummy with them. So the entire city would have either seen or known about this public action of releasing them from prison and giving them free pass to depart. The entire city would have known the magistrates' request, not demand that they depart. Paul's efforts for the church in Philippi, his insistence upon justice, has succeeded. He has done what he set out to do. This is a beautiful story and example for us. 
Now, we must say, though, that had they been truly repentant, they would not have asked Paul to leave, right? <laughs> they would have been so thankful for him to have been there. They would have promoted him. They would have used their influence to advance the gospel in their town, which is the best work any magistrate can do, is to advance the preaching of the gospel in their town. What is better for civil society than a people filled up with love for God and one for another and one another? What better fills up the peace of society than the love of God and love of one another that comes forth from the gospel? Every civil magistrate should clamor for gospel preaching in their midst. They are compelled to do honor to Christ and His servants, to worship before their feet, and to know that He has loved them. And yet, do not go so far as to have benefit by Christ or to come in for a share in His love. And that text there, Revelation 3.9, talks about the synagogue of Satan even bowing down before the feet of God's people. So, what does Paul do? Does he leave immediately? Does he have a mistaken view of Romans 13 and that he's supposed to just tuck his tail and tiptoe out of the town? So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. That is not departing Philippi. That is not. That's not what it is. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed. So Paul, learn, let's learn from him, and Silas is with him. They live for the church. They are focused on encouraging and strengthening the church. And each of us, by God's grace, have our gifts and our callings and our talents and our ability by His Spirit through His choreography to strengthen and build up His church. That should encourage each one of us. So they don't immediately depart. And this further reveals the power that God has over tyrants. Those who had just shortly before treated them the way they treated them, had asked them to depart, they did not dare to harass them any further. Their rod bearers are with the ones with their tails tucked. They wanted to keep those guys close in just in case at this point in time. No, leave, no, no, no. Leave Paul and Silas and that team. You leave them alone. They'll depart when they're ready. Now, we need to also see Paul's faith here, brothers and sisters, to do God's will instead of listening to the magistrate's request. Paul's focus upon building up God's church directs his decisions, not the threats of political rulers. Remember the scripture, once you put your hand to the plow, he knew his calling, he had been looking for the place, and now he's doing it, and he's not going to turn back from it. So first they go to Lydia's home. That's worth noting. The Lord has established a gospel beachhead in Philippi through this sweet lady, this new believer. And I hope that we'll note the importance of Christian hospitality to advance the gospel. I hope each of us will consider our homes and how our homes can be put to use to advance the gospel. I also want us to note Lydia's growing faith. You know, think about it. She's a young believer. She's seen all this madness take place. She doesn't give way to fear. She's not one of the, uh, one of the seeds that fell in the, in the thorny ground. That's not her. She's not one of the seeds that fell on the rocky ground. That's not her. She, the seed fell on good soil. For her, she's, she's bearing fruit. So rather than give way to fear of the political rulers and the wealthy syndicate, she openly identifies with the gospel. That's, that's a good message for us. And her home is brought to it as well. All that she has, all of her people, all of her household are brought with her into this advancing the gospel work that does bring threat and risk into her life. 
And then after they have encouraged all the brethren, they depart. So Paul's got a plan. His plan is he's going to strengthen the believers before he leaves. Now, again, this should take us back to considering all of the prisoners that were there and uh, the ones that they had that magical earthquake where their, their chains fell off and their bonds were loosed and the doors came open. We have to wonder where these new believers come from. But the brethren are there. So Paul says, first things first. His calling here is before us again. His calling is on display. Just like always, not only does he preach the gospel unto conversions as an evangelist, but he, against all hurdles, goes on to preach the word unto sanctification. Remember, what initiated this entire second journey in the first place was to go back through the churches in southern Galatia and strengthen them and encourage them and check on them and make sure that they're okay. And this is the heart of every pastor. The heart of every loving Christian towards one another is to be checking on one another and seeking to pray for one another and strengthen one another and encourage one another and be strengthened and be encouraged by one another. And we see the beauty of of hospitality and how it fits together with all of that. So he's going to do what he's going to do. So he goes and he preaches the word now unto sanctification to help these young believers grow up in the Lord. And think about what an example it was to them, for them to have seen everything that he went through and everything that he did. What a display of focused gospel living for them. I hope that we will bear it in mind as well. About their work of of preaching unto sanctification, the commentary says they encouraged them to keep close to Christ and hold fast the profession of their faith whatever difficulties they might meet with, assuring them that all would then end well, everlastingly well. Young converts should have a great deal said to them to comfort them. For the joy of the Lord will be very much their strength. So Paul knows how vulnerable that new seed is as it's germinating and coming forth. And he wants to go there and he wants to help husband that new faith and bring help pull the weeds and and help put on some more good soil if you can. Now I think it's worth noting that it was a small church at that time. It was threatened. It was vulnerable. Certainly there was some uncertainty about the future of that little church at that time. I wonder if they had as many believers in their new assembly as we have here at Cornerstone. I wonder. But in time by Christ's power and love, he's the one who builds his church. The fellowship of believers there grew and the church at Philippi was established as a gospel beachhead for all of Europe. And it served as a sending place for missionaries throughout all of Europe for millennia. Paul and Silas had an extraordinary call to Philippi and yet when they have come thither, they see little of the fruit of their labors and are soon driven away from there. Yet they did not come in vain. Listen now. Though the beginnings here were small, the latter end greatly increased. Now they laid the foundation of a church at Philippi which became very eminent, had its elders and deacons and people that were more generous to Paul than any other church as appears by his epistle to the Philippians. Oh, let not ministers or Christians of any kind be discouraged though they see not the fruit of their labors presently. The seed sown seems to be lost under the clods, but it shall come up again in a plentiful harvest. In due time, so about nine years later, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi about them. 
and we, we see the fruits of what they had become. He says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessity. So even as a little church early on there, they're loving Paul and helping him through the remainder of his Macedonian ministry, helping him as he goes back from Macedonia. And now nine years later, there's enough going on there that he needs to write them this epistle and encourage them and to help them see how important it is to be a servant. And that's what Philippians is all about, is being a servant who lays down your life for others. So, some questions to know, love, and obey God more and to think this through for, for our, our time today, for, for our lives today. First of all, do you fret because of the power and the threats and the attacks of evil leaders, whether they be magistrates or business leaders or public health officials or finance leaders or bank owners or military leaders, etc.? Do you look to their power and their wealth and their influence and find yourself fretting as they promote uh, wickedness and evil and come against those who dissent? Or do you walk in real-time faith in God's power to direct their hearts? You know, I think many of you have probably heard me pray for God to expose the evil deeds of darkness in regard to the whole coronavirus course of events. Have you heard me pray that aloud before? And I, probably many of you have prayed the same thing. Okay, so bear that in mind. And how many times have you had a burden on your heart for elected officials to behave a certain way and they, without contacting them, create the forum for, for that message and call you and ask you to come and give that message? Now, that's what happened at this pandemic preparedness listening session. I believe that this falls into line with what we saw with Paul and his prayers for the magistrates then. I believe that this is evidence that God very well may be directing hearts to expose these evil deeds, to awaken the people of our world to what has happened to us, and to bring forth justice. Do you pray and ask God to turn these hearts even now? Not just resting in the fact that He will or that He does, but that even now, that He would do this so that these leaders would have fear of justice and find themselves desiring to plead for peace with his mistreated people. Do you pray that way? Even now, Lord, that we would pray. And we, we see, again, this great example at John MacArthur's church where the L.A. County just really just came against them and didn't stop until they took them to trial and paid every bit of their legal fees. If that's not an admission of wrongdoing, I don't know what is. But you look at MacArthur, he was driven by God's grace, it appears, for the church. And so many other churches around the, the nation were looking to see how they were going to respond. They, they, helped, they helped the church through their response. And I'm not claiming he did everything perfectly, but wow, he did a lot of things right. Most of the things right, in my opinion. Do you pray for them? Do you even go beyond that and pray that they would repent and be born again? Wouldn't it be wonderful to see Anthony Fauci pray?
praising the Lord Jesus Christ on public TV. Giving thanks and praise to the God who made him and forgave him of his sins. And confessing his sins publicly before the world and asking for the world to forgive him. Do you pray that way? What does it mean to your decision making and prayer life that Jesus Christ is the Father's rod bearer? As you pray, do you have the imprecatory prayers as a comfortable part of your life? Like, like the psalmist did time and time again. Because, because we are not righteous, but Jesus is. And because He is righteous, we can pray those prayers. These are really the prayers of Jesus. We bring no threats against elected officials. We do not call for any riots or violence. We call out to Jesus, the rod bearer. That's what we do. And that He would grant righteousness to elected officials to enforce the law and to remove bad laws and put in the good laws that need to be there. Do you understand that via biblical civil governance, Jesus shares His rod of rule with His elect who are called into that calling? And that we should think that way when we vote. When we consider civil governance as a whole, that we should think that way. Because they are appointed to be God's avengers of wrath. Do you ever naively confuse worldly sorrow of bad leaders with true change? You know, criminal enterprises, wealthy syndicates, espionage leaders, they always have an exit strategy. And usually it will have some paraclete associated with it, the coming alongside and the pleading and the excuse making. So be careful of that. Are you ever like the jailer, afraid to insist upon justice and settling for just being let go? And not, not continuing to pray for complete victory? Next, does your love for God's church guide your interactions with unrighteous political rulers? You know, if we focus on our freedom and on our rights and, you know, I'm a free man. No, you got it all wrong. We are called to live as Christians and to think for the church and to take our steps for the church. Again, I hope that you will take the time to, to look at the story of John MacArthur and those Canadian pastors. And I think you can really see in their case that this was what was guiding them. And, and it is a critical distinction that I hope that you will all embrace. These types of steps that they took for the church, for the good of God's kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel, that must be our motive. And of course, personal freedoms are attached to the ability to do that, but it's all for the gospel. It's all for Christ and for His name and for His glory. To have the freedom to preach His word and to live His law of love. Next. Do you really believe that God holds the hearts of the kings in His hand and directs it in whatever path He chooses, like the rivers? Do you really believe that God may expose 
darkness and bring justice, righteous judge justice through the civil magistrate upon the COVID-19 perpetrators who created the virus, who covered up its origins, who then rejected effective therapies and pushed unnecessary and harmful aggressive measures such as lockdowns and school closures, economy destroying things upon our land, and who hid and lied, hid, yes, blocked and lied about effective therapies that were available that could have saved our fellow Americans, likely tens or hundreds of thousands of them who probably died unnecessarily because of this, alone, alone in hospital rooms, unable to communicate with their families as they were dying. And who continue to push this genetic injection that is minimally effective, absolutely unnecessary, and very dangerous upon this world, as if it is safe and effective. As you pray, can you imagine Anthony Fauci fearful before the law and pleading for leniency? Do you trust God to open this thing up that we live in right now, this great global crime, and bring it to justice? I don't know what the Lord will do, but I think if we look to Paul, he would call us to seek justice before God and to be a part of exposing the evil deeds of darkness as as God gives us the ability. Brothers and sisters, the church goes on. I hope that we'll see from Philippi, that tiny little church, what it became and never despise the day of small beginnings. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do cry out to You, Lord, seeing this great course of events that You brought to pass in Philippi, how You, through the work You did there in Philippi, demonstrated Your complete and total sovereignty and rule over all, all, the, wor- all the world, seen and unseen. You brought down the great demonic force that held that city. You brought down the prison that was holding them. You brought down the civil magistrate. You brought down the wealthy syndicate. And you raised up Jesus Christ over all of them over time. And we look to you once again now, O God, in today's world asking you to do the same. That you would cause righteousness to come forth like the sunshine coming up in the morning. Bringing the radiance of your glory over the earth. And bringing forth justice upon those who set themselves against you. Oh God, would you do this for the sake of the name of Christ and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.